I need to use your phone then to call my family and, and tell them that I'm safe here and make sure they're okay. Michelle, they're not okay. How do you know that? And everyone outside of here is dead. Welcome to The Bagel Boys Show. This is a movie podcast that's not meant to be taken seriously, seriously. We go through different miniseries covering five-year-old films, franchises, and finally, actors. And this is our miniseries on the films of 2016. Well, guys, here we are once again. We're back with our five-year-old film series of the Bagel Boys show. My name is Wes. And I am not Wes. And I'm also not Wes? Yeah. He's look not. at that. We got another not Wes, not Daniel. A very special guest today. Don't say his name. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it's a mystery Wes. episode. <laughs> mystery, mystery man. We've got Ben Bland here today. It's Tim Allen. <laughs> it's a twist of the episode. Ben is actually Tim Allen the whole time. We can't really confirm or deny. We're not with him physically, but he is here nonetheless. Happy to be here. Welcome, Ben. Yeah. Thank Thanks for joining our little our little uh little podcast movie show here. Long-time listener, first-time caller, I think is the, the way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> you listened before? Or are you just oh, obligated yeah. to say that? No. I listen to the Bagel Boys while I work. I hope my boss doesn't watch this and hears that. But... <laughs> be like, what's the Bagel Boys? <laughs> uh, this is the second episode of our 2016 miniseries. Uh, and we wanted to get Ben on the show here because Daniel and I were kind of uh, wanting to branch out as far as guests go and uh, who we see that's interested in talking movies and everything uh, in that field. And Ben actually made this post on social media. Was it beginning of uh, last year, correct? I think it was maybe right at the tail end of December of 2019. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, basically asking everyone, I'll, Ben, I'll let you go ahead and explain it because uh, I thought it was really, really interesting project you had going on last year. Yeah, so it actually started two years ago in 20, like end of 2018 for 2019. And I was just kind of like, you know, I kind of had that Netflix fatigue of you spend like 45 minutes just scrolling through everything. And then like half the time you just get too tired to even pick something. So in 2019, I set out and I was like, okay, I've got like of course, at that point, there were only like three streaming services. And now there's like 18 million that you subscribe yeah. <laughs> to. Um, but I was like, I just want to go through and all these movies that have been on my Netflix list or my Hulu list for like years, I just want to like sit down and I want to watch them. So I just started, you know, going through and I'm like, all right, here, I've, I've had Casablanca on here forever, because it's a classic, I'm just going to sit down and watch it. And I went through, I didn't have like, you know, a detailed, like, these are all the movies I'm going to watch, but I just wanted to be more intentional of like, hey, I'm going to watch good movies that I feel like I should have seen by now. Well, then, you know, so I did that for a year. And then last fall or fall winter, I was like, hey, you know what, I've 
I've been hitting all these ones that I've wanted to see, but I've got friends that also have great movie opinions. Let's see what they've, you know, what, what do they like and get some opinions. So I reached out to people and I got, I've got my list up here, 55 recommendations from a bunch of different people. I will say that's a lot of movies. Yeah. Because of 2020, the weirdness, um, I, I didn't finish because there are some of them like that you actually can't stream or even rent on Amazon, which is crazy to me um, in, in this year of our Lord now 2021. Um, but I, I, so there are five remaining and I promised those people I will watch them when I am able, but you mind yeah, sharing this last five? Yeah, the I'm last curious. five. Yeah. Um, so La Haine, which is a French film, it was actually on Amazon forever. And I just kept procrastinating on it. And then I like went to hit watch and it was like, this is no longer available. Uh. <laughs> um, and then my uncle suggested actually another French film. I guess I just don't like the French. I guess. Yeah. Um, it's called King of Hearts. My uncle recommended it to me. I really don't know what it's about, but it's French. Um, and okay. So I will, I will clarify two of them. I can watch. I'm just, it's little women. The new one? I, the the new one and the one from the nineties. Okay. I, I'm I'm I want to read the book first. Oh and I started that makes it. Sense. And you know, kind of I've I've heard uh, Daniel Foster still hasn't finished Dune. And that's kind of my little women of I've I've tried it and I got like halfway <laughs> oh, through. Wait, hold on a second. Those are two very different things. <laughs> no, it's a perfectly valid point. Keep going. Good. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got to finish the book and then I'm going to watch both of those back to back. We're going to marathon it, but so that's there. And then the last one was the cure from the late eighties or early nineties. It's a good band. Yeah. I don't think it's about the band. I think it's about (laughs) HIV. Oh, not a good. (laughs) You walked right into that one. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, so you know, and the, the Bagel Boys gave me some good suggestions. Uh, let's see, Wes, you gave me Parasite, which was one of my top movies that I watched last year, and Blade Runner, which was also up there, and The Lighthouse, which I still like. <laughs> I think I liked it. I threw that I'm one in there just because I was like, this is like a grenade. I'm just going to throw it in there, see what happens. Yeah, I, I still don't know what the lighthouse is but it it was an experience and i appreciated that i love the lighthouse but if you're passionate about how much you love it i'm a little worried about it (laughs) yeah for sure (laughs) let's see and then the daniel gave me probably my favorite thriller that i watched last year which was prisoners hey love that one and then we disagree on this one but i think it was just ad astra I don't think it was a bad movie. It just wasn't for me. And I appreciate that Daniel liked it. And I asked him what he liked about it. And all of his points were valid. And I understood them. Oh, no. Uh, Daniel has left the podcast. <laughs> his love of Ed Asher. And I was going uh... to bring this up. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's the one black stain on their friendship <laughs> forever. We'll expect to come back to the show. <laughs> well it's, it's been great I'll, I'll see myself out if that's the criteria for guests that they like at astra <laughs> this is gonna be our days are numbered daniel it's me and sometimes you 
<laughs> then I wanted to ask the thank you for yeah. bringing those up. Was there like out of the 55 there, you know, was there ever a point when you were like, ah, just forget it. Like, I'm not gonna, like, I'm just gonna watch what I want or like, I'm sure you had time to catch up on your own personal uh, interests as well, but like, were there ones that you like got to and then you kind of skipped? I know you kind of already answered that, but was there ever a breaking point in that list? I will say, I don't, there was never a point where I was like, man, I'm just not going to finish this. Like, cause I think a majority of the movies I either liked on their own accord or I could find some, you know, like, okay, I understand why this was recommended. It might not be, you know, my favorite movie, but it's got merits to it. And I think for the most part, all movies, you know, there's a reason they were created. They've got some something to bring to the table, even at Astra. I will say that right now. Look at look um, at Ben making the bagel. <laughs> Ben's um, making his case for third bagel boy right now. Oh, there, we go. <laughs> there I think I'm trying to look because I wrote down the dates when I watched them all too. And it definitely like it looks like around June and July, it kind of slowed down a little bit, and then maybe a little bit again in October. I think those were times where I was just, you know, A, I was getting towards the end of the list and there were a lot that it's like, oh, it's just not streaming, so can't watch it right now. But, you know, there were other times where I'm like, hey, I'm getting through it, but I also, you know, there's some good movies that are coming out that I want to watch too. Yeah, I was going to say that was that midpoint, like late summer and early fall-ish was the time when movies actually kind of just started to reappear into the limelight of like hey we're we're here we're coming out again yeah and some of my favorite movies of last year like palm springs which was probably my favorite movie of 2020 i I haven't watched that many yet but you know because a lot of them are now starting to stream but you made wesley's day i love palm springs is a good movie ben give me like a couple movies that you think are overhyped that you've heard about you know everybody sings its praises but you think it's a little overhyped and give me two movies that surprised you that you really liked all right well here we go i'm gonna start with the positive because i think it's always good to be positive two movies that i watched last year that i don't i had heard of both of them before but i don't think they get any of the the credit that they should um the first one comedy one of the best like it probably ranks in my top 10 of all time after seeing it is the way way back with Dude, Steve yeah. Carell and Tony Collette? Like no one ever talks about that. What is happening? <laughs> why? <laughs> why are Ben and I on the exact same same like wavelength? This oh. is kind of scary. I watched that for the first time when I was house sitting, and I was loving it. I never heard of it before. Yeah, like it's one that when I worked at Half Price Books uh, last year, it was it came in, and I had a couple coworkers that were like, "Yeah, that's a good movie." And then I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then I never watched it. And then I had a friend recommend it. And I was like, this is, you know, that was one of the movies that I had laughed out loud the most in. But it also, it's heartfelt. You know, there's a good family story behind it. And, you know, Toni Collette, I think everybody's saying it. But, like, when's she going to get her due? Yeah. Between that and uh, Hereditary, I think, yeah. And even, you know, her her side performance in Knives Out mm-hmm. she had very little screen time, but she did so much with it. When are we going to get her on the show, Wes? Who? Oh, Tony Collette. 
She's on the short list, but Ben beat her out for this week. Okay. Yeah. Tony, if you're watching, I apologize. Uh, The Bagels would love to have you on a future episode. That's one of the few movies where Sam Rockwell doesn't play a racist. Yeah. (laughs) Just a funny person. (laughs) Not a white supremacist. (laughs) He's working at that uh, water park. It's great. (laughs) And he's got such a good, you know, turn in that. So many good moments. And the funniest thing, you know, it was written by the Dean from the TV show Community. Huh. And um, Nat Faxon, who hasn't really been in a whole lot, but they're like a writing pair. And you look at it and you're like, really? This was written by the Dean from Community? But (laughs) hilarious. Yeah, she was one of the water park employees. She's awesome. So yeah, that was definitely one of the most underrated comedies on the, the drama side, um, this movie that I had two friends that have been like at, you know, going to bat for it for years. And I finally watched it is called Wind River. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jeremy Renner mm-hmm. is in it. And, you know, the, the most haunting part and John Bernthal, which also doesn't get enough respect for anything. Right. Uh, great actor. But, you know, it's, it's this real story about, you know, indigenous people in, oh, I'm going to say the state and I'm going to be wrong. So I'm going to Google it on my second monitor. Michigan. <laughs> Not that one. Indiana. I don't know. I think it's North Dakota. Wyoming. Oh, I'm wrong. See, I was going to say See, North Dakota. And then that's I didn't why I didn't exactly, say it. You telegraphed my move there. I was like, I think it's North Dakota. No, Wyoming. But yeah, the the Wind River Indian Reservation in Wyoming and, you know, the movie, the movie plays out, it's kind of this, you know, detective cop story about this uh, teenage girl that goes missing and then the pieces kind of come together. But, you know, I think, I think the part that really sticks with you and it's directed by Taylor Sheridan, who did um, Sicario and uh, Hell or High Water as well. Hell or High Water, which is amazing. Um, you know the the end of it you get you go through this whole movie and it's it's been about a year since i've seen it but it just puts up on a black screen this statistic that's real about how many young girls are abducted and go missing each year in native american reservations and it's not reported like there's like you know they say this is how many we know of but most of them just aren't reported to police and it's you know it leaves a really really sad you know leaves you sad and depressed and i saw that movie cry uh in theaters alone like Mm -hmm. as in no one else was in the theater and i was like maybe this is just not like because i was a big uh, like sicario and hell or hard water fan i think that one i think that one came out after those two and i was pumped for it no one else was there and i was like is this gonna be good and i thought it was yeah the tone is so striking in that movie it's crazy i'm not a big jeremy renner fan but he's very good in it mm-hmm. and uh yeah he surprised me all right now i gotta come up with two that were overrated i will say i don't know if this one's overrated but i just it wasn't for me the place beyond the pines you didn't like it with Ryan Gosling. I I liked aspects of it, but I thought it's it's something that I've and actually I can tell you my second one because they both kind of go in the same issue for me. And the second one is Waves. 
that A24 darling. Mm -hmm. And I think both of them, they've got these great movies in them. And then the director makes this choice, like Waves especially. It's two movies that are just kind of stuck together. And it's like, I love the first half. I love the second half. But they don't fit to me as one coherent movie. And I think The Place Beyond the Pines is the same thing. You've got the story of Ryan Gosling, the the stunt driver and the, you know, heist, you know, bank robber. And then you've got the story of the cop. And then randomly it's their, yeah. yeah, And then it's their two sons that like meet up. And I was like, okay, there's some like, you know, there's symbolism to it. But I felt like each story as it went on, just I was less interested in it. Yeah, I don't know. I like Place Beyond the Pines. I think it gets away with it for me, but I, I understand. It's it's so strange, though, because I feel like it almost doubles down on it because you have the three plot lines. It's a very long movie. Waves, I feel like its problem is it's too short. Mm-hmm. So it's like two very separate stories that have a short movie because when you're just left kind of like, well, what the heck? But uh, please be on, you know, beyond the pines. I feel like it kind of doubles down on it, so it works for me in a weird way. Uh, here's a segue: Bradley Cooper in that movie, um, he does the voice of Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character in Ten Cloverfield Lane. Fun fact: well, her, her boyfriend. Yeah, her character. I was going to say. You said, <laughs> I was like, wait, that's not a segue. I do want to give both of you guys. I want to give both of you guys kudos really quick for talking about those movies because. They're very like spoiler heavy, like things happen in in the plot aspects of both those movies. And you guys just kind of breezed right through like describing those movies wonderfully. <laughs> but Daniel, Daniel let the cat out of the bag and let the, the monster out of space here in a way uh, and broke the, the title for the movie we're talking about today is 10 Cloverfield Lane. It's the uh, 2016 uh, thriller from Dan Trachtenberg and... It is the spiritual successor to the Cloverfield movie that came out in 2008, which I wanted to talk to you guys about really quick before we get into this movie we're discussing. Just the fact that that movie came out eight years prior to this movie. So this is a 2016 movie and Cloverfield came out in 2008. That was one of the, has there ever been like an internet marketing campaign on that level like Cloverfield was. I don't personally remember it as much. I remember the aftermath of it, but there was a lot of like speculation. There's a lot of mystery. When the trailer debuted for Cloverfield, there was no title. It just had the date of when it was getting released. And I kind of, I guess my point is, I kind of miss the subtlety of movie marketing where now it's all franchise heavy and all you got to know like the whole gist of the story before you can even like feel comfortable seeing it as far as like mass audiences go. But what are your guys thoughts about that? How we've gotten away from that as like moviegoers, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think you're totally right. I will say in that same vein with the Cloverfield marketing, I think the, the other movie that popped to my mind when you were talking about it was actually the third movie in this series. Yeah. Cloverfield paradox that nothing was known about it until Super Bowl Sunday 2017, 2018. 20, and then they put 18, out a, tra- yeah. Yeah, they like put a, out a trailer before. like the at the beginning of the Super Bowl and at the end of the Super Bowl, they said, now streaming on Netflix. Yeah. And, it was, and they got me like, 
I watched that game and then I went and watched the Cloverfield Paradox right afterwards. And we don't need to talk about that movie because <laughs> it was fine. Yeah. But yeah, I think, you know, we're in this age where there's all these websites that, you know, nitpick every frame of a trailer. And now we have to, you know, lie about what's in a movie with fake trailers, like yes. Avengers Infinity War. And mm-hmm. which I will say I'm guilty of this. I go through any Marvel content or Star Wars content and look and I'm like, oh, I, kn- I know what that reference is. But there's something to be said about a movie that you go in and you're like, I saw a trailer and I don't know what it is. But here I am. It's a Tuesday on board. Let's watch it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in as excited as I am for the Spider-Man 3 movie coming out this year, there is something a little sad about how I know that, you know, so many people are coming back, which leads me to believe that they're going to do a multiverse story, blah, blah, blah. It spoils itself. So it is really nice to see. I remember seeing this trailer and being really pumped about it. And yeah, while I'm excited for those Marvel movies, just a little part of me is like, man, I missed that anticipation. But I think that's kind of the problem with big event movies because they're, you know, everybody wants to know everything that's going to happen. And, you know, everybody wants to be in the inside circle of, oh, what did you hear? They're getting back to this one, you know? Mm-hmm. And there was, there's nothing wrong. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with being like excited. And I don't want anybody to think that's, that's what we're getting at here. But there was one thing, memory uh, comes to mind of my mother-in-law going to see Thor Ragnarok in theaters, and she had no idea that Hulk showed up in that movie or that there was like a planet sort of like revolving <laughs> around like wor- worshiping Hulk in a, in a sense. And so her reaction to that kind of spurred me to like, even though I like host this little small movie podcast to kind of pull away from movie trailers, because I'm like, there's so much more you can kind of get out of things when you have no clue if you're at least interested and in 90 percent of the time if someone's like hey here's a movie about you know a candy bar rapper that's fallen onto the street i'm like oh that sounds interesting i'll go like i don't need to you know it could be something stupid (laughs) and i'll go watch it uh i read that the cast didn't even see the full name of this movie Mm -hmm. until not like a week before it came out yeah, a lot of people, there was no, uh, the whole Cloverfield thing when it comes to this movie. I'm glad they, this was like a kind of one of those scripts on, I forget what it's called, but it's like the hot list of scripts that haven't been picked up yet. I think it was called The Seller. Mm-hmm. And for years, it was kind of being, going through rewrites and being picked up by different studios and whatnot. And essentially, they kind of used, and I don't blame them for this, they it got tossed around and then obviously J.J. Abrams went on to produce it and they use the cloverfield thing in a sense even though it's not really connected you definitely don't need to see the first one to get enjoyment out of this at all i don't think it enhances or lessens the experience there's definitely connections there but i like the idea of using this like this really solid script slapping like a a franchise tag on it in a way so that way more people go see it uh but yeah no that's yeah, that point kind of, it, it's conflicting for me because on one hand, I'm like, I'm so glad that this movie was made because spoiler alert, I really enjoy this movie. All right. But on the other hand, I'm like, are we, are we stifling creativity so much that the only way that an audience is going to go see this is if we write Cloverfield on it, mm-hmm. you know, which the seller, 
in itself is not the best title. I'll give it that. But, right. you know, with J.J. Abrams, it's like, I appreciate that he was able to make this movie. But it also kind of leaves that taste in my mouth of like, I wish, it, you know, the movie could have stood on its own accolades without having to be made with this purpose. Right. And well, anthology series, the whole concept's really cool. And I know a lot of TV shows do it. Like Fargo is really popular right now. But yeah, I kind of wish they would do more of that with movies. I think they might be doing that with Knives Out. I don't know if that counts because they're keeping Daniel Craig's character. Like different little adventures with his detective. Yeah, maybe that's not a bad example, but I really enjoy those types of stories. But uh, hopefully they bring that more into movies. Yeah, I think that'll be kind of a recurring take throughout this episode. But before we get too far into deep diving here, uh, it's time for the tomato game. So we are going to guess the tomato meter for this. Obviously, we rank the movies on bagels, which is a superior food item for ranking your movies. But we'll have Tastier Daniel too. Guess, taste. Ooh, oh, well, yeah, I think that. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but we're going to have guest Ben here and Daniel go head to head and guess the critic and the audience score. So let me read you guys the consensus and then I'll let you guys guess and then we'll kind of go lower or higher from there. A smart and solidly crafted script, 10 Cloverfield Lane makes the most of its confined setting and outstanding cast and suggests a new frontier for franchise filmmaking. So kind of what we were just talking about there. Uh, Both scores are fresh. So do you want to go give it a stab, Ben, for critics? Now, I will say I've been on the IMDb page a lot in anticipation, but I have not looked on Rotten Tomatoes, so I have right. no, no record on the record. I have, I have not looked. I'm assuming it's got to be, now I'm doing critic or audience first? A critic first. Critic, perfect. I think it's got to be in the 70s, because I think there are probably people that are going to be a little more divided on it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say 73. Okay. I'm going to say... 79 this is actually a 90 percent wow for critics which is kind of crazy the audience score ben you were kind of sniffing at it the audience score is still fresh but it's lower all right well if i'm sniffing at it let's go 75 uh solid 70 79 on that one wow so yeah well, I'm glad that people appreciate it as much as they yes. did. I, I was a little pessimistic for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm surprised the critics were that high, too, because that's a pretty high. The 90s, like, there's only been, I mean, there's been a handful of movies we've talked about that have gotten, like, the 90. Uh, but that's a pretty high one for an original sci-fi movie with a semi-controversial ending, which we'll get into. <laughs> I do want to say for everybody listening, uh, we like it is known, we do spoil the movies we talk about. We kind of get into everything the movie that has going on for itself. But this movie in particular, I think uh, just from how we're talking about it, this is something that I'd say would get at least a, a recommendation from everyone in this room, regardless of our opinion, as far as original filmmaking goes. And so if you haven't seen it yet, I think we all would recommend you go watch it and form your own opinion before uh, listening to this episode. Because uh, I do think this is one of the few movies we'll talk about that if you know what's going to happen and you know all the, the plot details and whatnot, it does kind of take away from the experience over something like La La Land that we just talked about, you know? Agreed. Yeah. 
speaking of La La Land, 10 Cloverfield Lane was originally going to be directed by Damien Chazelle. Really? Yes. He, uh, I was looking into the IMDb. He actually was one of the people brought in to consult on the ending. And he wrote a version of it. He's credited as a screenwriter. Yep. But I believe the version he wrote was not ultimately used, at least not used in full. Yeah, I believe Ben is 100% correct here. They had him uh, moving along with the process of directing the movie. And he was going through the rewriting, like Ben said. And then his Whiplash project got picked up by the studio. And so he hopped over there to go direct that wonderful movie. I think in Damien's version of this movie, instead of the monster at the end, it's J.K. Simmons. <laughs> this running rampant, <laughs> terrorizing planet Earth as a huge monster. <laughs> you walk outside, you just see him. They're like, <laughs> it's time to get back into that bunker. <laughs> it's not as cool, bro. Uh, yeah, so we'll kind of go through. Uh, this is no score and five years ago. We'll kind of talk about... Uh, how the movie was perceived by us, uh, why we kind of picked it, our, our positive takes and everything first coming out of the theater or out of home or wherever we w- first watched the movie back in 2016. Uh, one of the things I remember thinking, because my brother, uh, Mikey, friend of the show, brother of the show, had seen the movie and he, Mikey, Mikey likes movies, don't get me wrong, but back then he was going to college out of state. And so our conversations were kind of few and far between, but I remember distinctly, it was like one in the morning and I just like get this text alert and I'm like looking at Mikey's like, dude, you've got to go see this movie called 10 Cloverfield Lane. I'm like, why? Like, isn't it just, you know, Cloverfield two or like what's, what's going on with it? Cause I had missed the marketing for it completely. And so he was just like, he didn't tell me anything to his credit. And he was just like, you just got to go see it. And so I remember seeing it and walking away and just kind of stunned by not just the twists and turns throughout the movie and the performances, but the fact that this movie always puts an emphasis on showing and not telling, especially during the setup of the movie. I love that. The fact that you're kind of doubling down on not having a really, uh, obvious or over-the-top kind of marketing campaign or uh, letting people you know selling your movie essentially for wide audiences you're kind of being very mysterious and not know not telling a lot of people what what's going on and then at the beginning of the movie for a good like 10 minutes or so there's really not a whole lot of dialogue you learn everything about your characters through just kind of watching them go through you see mary elizabeth winstead's character michelle kind of on the run, you don't really know what the history is 100% of her and her fiance or boyfriend or whatever the case is there, uh, kind of leaving her apartment in a rush and going down the street and getting into an accident, basically, all in one. I love the the title uh, credits where the, the accident is happening and it like cuts out, shows like the studio name, car crash again, cuts back and back and forth. I, I love the title reveal of this movie. Yeah, I will say I was a little late to the party on this one. I didn't see it until I think 2018 or 2019. Um, But what I really, you know, watching the movie for the first time, what got me was how much it subverted my expectations. You've got this bunker movie and you, you know, from the get go with John Goodman's character, Howard, you, you know, you're set up to think, well, he abducted this girl 
he's gonna, you know, he's got this nefarious reasoning behind it, you know, all this stuff. And when he comes in for the first time, he's very, you know, he's very gruff and very one note of like, you, you need fluid, you've lost a lot of fluid, you need to eat eggs. And his reasoning and, you know, what's going on in his head isn't exposed. And then the farther you get into it, he starts opening it up and you're like, oh, he's just, you know, this kind of odd doomsday prepper. And then, you know, as it keeps going, there's all these different twists and turns that go into it. And, you know, you, you're never really sure who to believe and what to believe until the end. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that I think makes a great thriller type movie, you know, psychological thriller. And yeah, it's one that it, it definitely got me thinking about it. And I was so excited to go back to it and revisit to talk about it today. Uh, I'm in the same boat. I was late to the party. I think I will 2018, maybe 2017. I was in my apartment. I would have been, I don't know. Uh, Wes recommended it to me. Uh, guys, I hate to be the Debbie Downer here, but I, I didn't care for it. And it's still not a movie I particularly enjoy. Oh. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <sighs> um, no. Uh, yeah. So watched it. I've only watched it twice now because I watched it years back and yesterday I watched it again. Um, that's all I'll say for now. I, I, don't, I, I don't want you guys to get the impression I don't hate this movie by any means. No. It's, it's eh. Eh for you. The classic eh for me. All right. And we'll get into nitpicks and uh, negatives here in a second. Uh, I kind of liken this movie to like, uh, kind of like you said, Ben, it kind of holds its cards and kind of waits and you don't really know if it's bluffing or has the winning hand before the end. And it, it just, it really makes you wait until like the last 15 minutes or so. And then what proceeds is still like a whole nother bonkers situation. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that's where it kind of won me over in a sense, because even though I think on rewatches, cause I've probably seen it four times, four or five times now, even though it seems like quite a bit, uh, my wife actually really likes this movie as well. And so when I saw it kind of recommended to her, she really liked it. And so I think we've watched it once or twice over the years. Um, and going back to it that amount of time, uh, just kind of the character moments hit me and it kind of realized that there's a lot more depth and subtlety into these roles than just being like, oh, John Goodman's playing a bad guy this time. Like, that's different. Like, yes, it is different. It is unique, but there's a lot more there than just being the shock value of it all. There's a lot going on. There is, uh, it, part of it has to do with J.J. Uh, Abrams reducing, like the, uh, like if you guys have watched The Lost at all, like there's a mm -hmm. lot of strong, like uh, the Hatch episode vibes in this where you oh, got yeah. Desmond in the Hatch. Mm -hmm. A lot of uh, that aesthetic of like that homey, but also industrial feeling. Uh, the music is another extension of that where you get like this this eeriness but also this weird flavor of comfortability like people live here and people are pleasant here but there's also that very uh dark underlying tone like rumbling in the background where you just know like okay this is fine and all but something's off here something smells fishy so i like kind of playing playing with that throughout the movie i think they did a great job one of the other things just kind of going through like the plot here of, of certain things that i think kind of play to that the uh the movie's always like making a case for and against what the truth is. One of the things that I think of immediately when I say that is 
uh, when Michelle like runs up to the window, she kind of smacks John Goodman's character up beside the head with a bottle and gets up there and is able to look outside for the first time since being in captivity. She sees like everything is fine, but then she sees the pigs that are completely like mauled and it's it's a pretty gory, like intense visual thing you see and you see all that shock and you see that realization of like, oh, this guy, Howard, he, he's right. Like this is bad news out here. And so you're like, oh, well, that's it. Like he's correct. Like he's telling her the truth. He's trying to protect her. But in that same scene, the way that scene ends is immediately kind of like you said, Ben, subverting expectations as she kind of like looks over and sees his truck and sees the paint color of her car on that truck. So as soon as you start to trust this guy, you're immediately thrown back into that whole thing again of like, okay, but now he ran me off the road. Like, what's this, what's the deal here? Like this guy's up to something clearly. Right. And I think it's, you know, it's the classic JJ Abrams puzzle box of he's going to give you just enough information at a time to keep you interested in it. And, you know, cause you see the paint there and the connection starts forming. And then, you know, 10 or 15 minutes later, Howard comes in and is like, yes, you know, I did crash into your car, but, you know, I saved you because of that. I was in such a hurry because it was going on. And, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, every time you get this, you know, this instinct of like, no, he's actually a bad dude. It comes back and you're like, oh, but here's the reason why he's not, you know? yeah he crashed the car but he saved her and you know all this stuff yeah no i think that's a great point too there's just a lot of back and forth route goes on throughout the movie i don't know if we're told exactly how long she's down there with with howard and emmett i think that's a great thing about the you know the setting of the bunker is time has kind of lost this meat, which I think is really reminiscent of 2020 in quarantine. You know, it's one of those who knows how long, but it really, in the end, it doesn't really matter. Hopefully your quarantine is going better than, uh, (laughs) you know, we're still in it. We'll see. (laughs) But you know, and it, the the fact, the relationships that the three build throughout, because it's definitely a very terse situation, especially that first dinner scene of the three of them together, mm-hmm. where, you know, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is trying to, like, gauge the the dynamic, and she touches Emmett's hand, and there's the whole freak out, and, you know, there's, there's a great line in there, which I'll save for the quote section, but about showing the respect, and you know, you contrast that and then they start playing, you know, games together and yeah. they watch the Cannibal Airlines movie, which yeah. I, pa- <laughs> I paused on. Um, that's a good little Easter egg for one of the producers or I think so. Yeah. That. Yeah. Somebody that was working on the cast. But, you know, you get to this, it almost lulls you into this sense of like, oh, look, they're they're getting along and everything is great. And then, you know, the next movies are great. There's some great needle drops where it's just like, you know, real uh, peppy 50s music. Yeah, I Think We're Alone Now was in there. Really eerie. I love it. I love it when movies play like really happy uh, songs or tense or sad moments. Yeah, the bunker aspect of it is something I think they play with really well because we're given a good sense of like how big the environment is and especially when you're in a 
one location movie essentially it's important for you know the director and writers to establish that like okay we're not just in this mystery box of random rooms here thrown together like we know that michelle's kind of on one end you got howard and like the the community quarters on the other and then there's the stairs right there so that way when things you know start spiraling out of control you kind of know the the immediate threat of the situation of like what's going down and what she has to do to get out of there and i think the you know one of the things that i love most about this movie is how they shot it and i think it was really important towards the you know the first 20 minutes or so they had some of those longer tracking shots that showed michelle walking through so then at the end when you get another long tracking shot that shows you know the ending of it you can kind of you know the layout well enough to understand where she's going and what's what's going to happen next and for a movie set in a bunker and a real industrial look, it doesn't look too drab or grim. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, you got some things to say, Daniel. Here, I kind of can sense you. So the the next thing we've got up on our our next category here is uh, same flick. Now we nitpick. We're just going to kind of talk negatives that we didn't really catch the first time around, and stuff we've noticed these years later that might still bother us, or things we just don't like in general. Things we're not vibing with, and. Daniel, like you said, you're not really vibing with the movie. So you've got the you've got the platform here. What's your case against this movie, or, or is it just more of a personal thing? It's not really a case against. I think it always benefits a movie to have a very high rewatchability factor. Mm-hmm. But I feel like thrillers, the pressure's on it even more. And I don't think that this movie, for me really works well on rewatches and I think part of that is the first time I didn't enjoy it too much is because I I don't feel that emotionally invested in the the characters and I think that's the script because I'm a big fan of Mary uh, Elizabeth Winstead's performance and John Goodman's performance so I think it's more of the script Um, but because a movie that comes to mind Invisible Man Prisoners that we've talked about uh, why that movie works for me is because I've seen Prisoners four or five times and I'm still tense and nervous and anxious, even though I know what's going to happen. When I rewatched this, I was like, oh yeah, this is the dinner scene. I remember that. Oh yeah, this is the game scene. You know, you know I don't know. I feel like I was just kind of just humming along with it and not, um, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't grab me. Like, and that's kind of what I expect from a thriller, I guess. I think there is something to be said about, you know, a lot of thriller type movies, you kind of have that introduction to the characters before they're plunged into the situation. So you, you grow to like them as human beings before they're put under this extreme stress. And this one, like it starts with her leaving with no dialogue. Like she doesn't speak for the first, I think it was 10 minutes of the film. Yeah. And most of her interactions and all of John Goodman and john gallagher jr who plays emmett all of their interactions are in the bunker so you've got no basis for these people outside so you're right it is hard to form that emotional attachment to them because you you only know them in this one setting that for me is why it kind of weirdly works because this movie is only about an hour and 35 minutes or so so it is taking that's very cool yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) 
it's a very <laughs> unique premise that get kind of sets up shop and it's it's doing things simultaneously and i think that's for me why it gets a little bit of an edge but to to stay in the lane here of talking negatives uh I think Daniel, to, to your point, I think you have a, a very high bar when it comes to that thriller genre, which I'm, I'm guilty of too, with like comedies, for example, I'm very like hard to please when it comes to comedies, but I think hard that, to find, No, you're not because it's hard to find a comedy that's going to make you laugh every single time you watch it. I don't mean a rewatch. I just meant, just meant in general. Oh like, yeah. I you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, thing i wanted to say though that this we kind of touched on a little bit earlier is like is it kind of cheap to have that cloverfield name uh a little bit like that's it doesn't have too much to do with the movie though i think the fact of the matter is like you had this one that kind of made it work in a sense i don't know if more people would have gone to seen it it, it did have like a budget of like the low teens of, of millions of dollars and then it made around like 115 million and so it made its money back for sure how much of that was on the cloverfield name i don't know audience seemed to like this movie but i think one of the big complaints was the ending and so you have this uh very confined story of these three characters of mary elizabeth winstead john goodman and then john gallagher jr and you set all this time building up the the relationship between them and you kind of expect and I see why it wouldn't always work for some people. You, you expect that the ending would have something to do with the characters that we spent the whole movie with. And I don't really fault anybody if their big hangup is the ending of the movie, because I do think that is, while it works for me personally, I don't think I can just say, give the movie like a credit for like saying, hey, that works for me. That's cool. Like I, I can't bring myself to say that is completely good and sticks the landing because you you all the great stuff i think in the movie happens uh in that middle section if you will and in the beginning as well too i don't know if you feel the same way ben or not yeah i would say i think you hit the nail on the head and i think this is something that definitely the first time you watch it i think it's a lot more forgiving than when you go back and rewatch it is the last 10 minutes just kind of feel tacked on they were like, yeah. you know, oh, we needed to make it a Cloverfield movie, so we got to put a Cloverfield alien in it. Yeah. And, you know, even, and, you know, I understand we got to get some action in there, but it does feel so different from the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then even the, the very last scene where uh, yeah. Michelle is driving and then she gets the AM radio and it's like, if you have fighting experience or medical experience, yeah. go to Houston. And it's like, okay. Like, I understand the fighting nature after she's been through this, but it just, it didn't work for my character with her of, all right, I've, I fought one alien and I got out of this bunker. Now I'm going to be on the front lines on this alien invasion. <laughs> like, if you can beat John Goodman, you can do You can beat an army of aliens, apparently. The, uh, I think that's a good point to bring up because I was reading it somewhere where they were talking about the character arc of Michelle and I feel like it's really well done and it's like kind of is completed and then like you said it kind of feels tacked on but instead of it going like an extra step it goes hey I'm gonna take like a long jump Olympic style forward in this arc and it's kind of like a rock skips like twice and gets a really long second bounce. I'm like, Oh, where, where did this come from? It well, like, kind I of feel works. like, 
I feel like they really just wanted to make her Ripley from the Alien franchise. Yeah. They were just like, now she's a badass action hero. Like, there it is. (laughs) White muscle shirt. Yeah. See that. Mm -hmm. Um, One movie that I kind of compared this to, it's not exactly a thriller. It's pretty intense. But have you guys seen Room? Brie Larson? Mm -hmm. So I kind of compared What I liked about that movie is, yeah, you're kind of dropped into the story with that character. Um, but I feel like the script is better in that movie because her character has a definite personality and you get to you know her reaction with her son, you get all that. Mary Elizabeth Winstead's performance is good, but I couldn't really tell you much about her personality. Mm-hmm. I think that's what kind of hurts it for me. I'm just like, well, I, I mean, I'm rooting for her. I hope she makes it, but there's not really much personally that I'm drawn to, I guess. I think part of that has to do when you compare it to room is like Brie Larson, you've got this idea of like, she's stuck in here with the promise of not the promise of getting out, but like, that's the goal. You want to see her succeed in that with this movie, you've got, you know, the character stuff going on with Michelle, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, but you also have this looming question mark of like, is there a world to go back to? And that kind of like usurps, the whole thing and so where brie larson's like the shining light of that movie i think the performance in this this movie are fantastic but you're more focused on what's real and what what you know the truth is are we being lied to and that's kind of the focus of the movie yeah and you touched on my you know in the spirit of the the nitpick here there's one aspect of the movie that especially when I watched it last night, I was like, man, I can't forgive this because the whole movie is set up on this premise of, you know, you're doubting Howard, you know, in the back of your mind, you're like, is there this world that you go back to? And most of the stuff you can like, even the pigs, Frank and Mildred, you're like, he could have just been the sadistic person who like shot the pigs and like their carcasses have been rotting. Yeah. And like all this stuff with the, the air filtration and all you're like, there might not be a world to go back to. Mm -hmm. But then you get all this other aspects of like the girl who scratched help into it. And you're like, okay, now I don't trust him again. So, you know, everything that he says, you can find an explanation of why the world is habitable, you know, hospitable, whatever, you know, that you can live in it, except for the neighbor lady, Leslie. Yes. Because when she comes up, you know, she's got the, the, you know, the weird, like, skin deformity, and she's pounding, really wanting to get let in, and the whole time I watched after that point, I was like, there's no way that he could have set this up and faked it, unless, I mean, I guess if he had a phone, and he called the neighbor lady, and was like, hey, put on some makeup, and like, pound on the door, (laughs) yeah, but like, after you know the ending, and that the fact, you know, that the the air is somewhat toxic and there's been you know this alien warfare you're like okay yeah now you can trust howard the rest of the time yeah there's no way to fake that one aspect but but other than that yeah no i think you're you're a thousand it's funny because i i don't care for the ending but at the same time i can't really decide how i want it to end Mm -hmm. like i don't like the big cgi monster because like you said i feel like that's the studio it's pushing that in there but i also don't have any better ideas so maybe i should shut up about that i don't i think if you just you end it where she gets out and she sees the birds and she's like oh the air might be 
you know, I might be able to breathe out here now. Mm -hmm. And then maybe she takes off the helmet and then you're kind of left wondering if, can she breathe? Can she you not could breathe? Like, oh, yeah. That's you could cool. hold her on like a breath in, but no, like, yeah. breath out, like it cuts to black. You He's a writer, this guy. guy. I know. Look at, look ben. at ben. Listen to Ben. I'm just ben. doing the Christopher Nolan ending. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm a sucker for. That Does the top fall me. over? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I think you're, you guys are both, uh, you're making great points about the rewatchability, especially with the the neighbor character and also the the emphasis on mystery rather than character or story in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, this is an, the next category we have here is one of our new ones, Ben. This is our lukewarm observation. So it's not a hot take. It's not a cold slice. You just say something very quickly. That's obvious about the film. None of us acknowledge it. And we just move right along. You have to say it very pretentiously. All right. I'm gonna take off my glasses for this one. Ooh. Monsters, pretty scary stuff. Uh, director, Dan Trachtenberg, should direct more movies. It's the only one he's ever directed. I'll take that, yeah. Uh, the composer, Bear McCreary, has a great name. <laughs> I thought you were going to say We've got blast from the cast now. So we're going to give our some of the cast from five years ago supporting or distracting. We're either going to give them a blast or a pass on them. Uh, so we got John Goodman up first as Howard, who's basically like the inciting incident in character form in this movie as Michelle leaves her apartment, she's run off the road and we eventually learn it is this old kind of crazy man named Howard who's got a bunker built <laughs> underground. <laughs> John Goodman can do no wrong for me. Yeah. I love the man. He can do it all. He's really one of those actors. He's, he's a... It is funny because he gets called a character actor. I feel like that's a disservice. He, he can be hilarious, like a big Lebowski. He can be intimidating. He can be serious. Um, this isn't his scariest performance, though, because that would obviously be James P. Sullivan from Monsters, Inc. <laughs> himself. So, uh, what, am I wrong? I don't know. He does roar in that movie, Daniel. <laughs> He also doesn't shoot anybody, though, so I don't know. <laughs> John Goodman is the reason why I would potentially rewatch this. He's, he saves the movie, in my opinion. The fact that uh, Mark Rylance won an Oscar the previous year for Bridge of Spies, and then John Goodman wasn't even nominated for this movie, kind of furthers the stigma of, you know, sci-fi slash horror, because I, I honestly think this was like, one of the best supporting performances of this entire 2016 year. Ben's shaking his head. I, and, and my thing is, okay, the Academy, you know, you're sometimes pretentious, I understand. But like, he didn't get any award. Like, yeah. I'm looking at right now, the Saturn Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror Films is the only recognition he got. <laughs> Come on, where are the People's Choice Awards, the, you know, some of these where's, that we don't talk the, about. The Planetary Mars Science Fiction Awards or the, the Jupiter ones. 
Jupiter is the biggest. That's the biggest one other than Saturn. Yeah. Or the Uranus Award. <laughs> Sorry. Um, did he ever get nominated for anything in his career? He won a Golden Globe for Roseanne. What? <laughs> Do you remember when they killed him and then he came back? And it was just Yeah. But yeah, it doesn't look like he's ever gotten any Oscar buzz, which I think this is definitely the movie he'd probably get the most Oscar buzz for. It's kind of sad, too, because he gets he's kind of been wrapped up in some other movies more recently that weren't so great. Um, He was he's in the Transformers movies. I I forget which Transformer he voices. He voices one of the Transformers. But one of the other ones he was more recently in was uh, Captive State which was one of those movies that like looks very interesting <laughs> on paper. And then he's hardly in it. Like the marketing was centered kind of around him being this villain and he was barely in it. The other one that comes to mind was a uh, Kong skull Island, which he's <laughs> good. That's kind of what Daniel was saying. Like the character actor stuff, like he's playing the John Goodman, like mm-hmm. thing in that movie. I'm surprised he wasn't nominated for Argo. That's a classic. You know? Yeah. And I'd say all of his collaborations with the Coen brothers, even outside of Lebowski, he had a great role in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And inside Llewellyn Davis. Small roles. Yeah. Yeah. Great small roles that, you know, you don't need Oscar buzz, but let's just talk about it more. Yeah. John Goodman needs, needs more praise. John, if you're listening, we love you. Bless you, sir. (laughs) The one thing that I really like this time around, and this is the reason why this movie works uh, for me on rewatches, even with the twist not always holding up, the the way he kind of, sounds weird, the way he moves around this bunker, the way he like kind of carries his weight, he doesn't have a limp, but he has like this very intrusive like walking like stomping almost in a sense, and the, the way, <laughs> I don't know why I noticed this this, this time, but the way he like breathes and like the tempo of how he talks where he's like kind of breathing through the mouth like all the time it's very subtly unsettling it's very like (laughs) what's going on even in the moments where things are like happy and fine I'm like I don't I'm not really enjoying this guy's presence at all (laughs) yeah it's like the worst guy you'd want to get stuck with (laughs) apocalypse setting what sells it for me every single time, though, is the scene in which Michelle and Emmett are kind of devising a plan to break out, and they know something nefarious is going on in the background, and they're playing uh, gestures, I think is the name of the game. He's trying to get them to say Santa Claus. He's basically saying, like, I could see you all the time. and know what you're doing. And Emmett's getting more and more worried. He doesn't kind of pick up on it. And it's this very, like, tense thing where it's like, this is the type of guy that not only wouldn't be able to describe Santa Claus easily, but would also wait for a moment to strike in this very like innocent game family night moment. And so you're always on edge and it kind of ties, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh yeah. You're kind of fooled along with the characters in that scene. And I know, yeah, because the first time I watched that, I was like, oh, this is kind of cheesy. Like he wouldn't say that. And then I was like, Oh, he totally will. <laughs> this guy doesn't know how to act. Well, and it, it leads right into the, you know, the the really the climax of the film, which is the 
the vat of acid. Yes. And, you know, cause you kind of look at it and you're like, okay, maybe this is just a weird guy that like in his mind, you know, those people that you play, I think there's a great SNL skit about like people playing charades for the first time. And mm-hmm. like the person just keeps saying the word over and over again. And they're like, <laughs> that doesn't help, you know? So I'm like, maybe he's just really bad at this, but then it yeah. leads directly into that. And you're like, oh, maybe he was just really bad at it, but there is that, that duality of, no, I, I know what you're doing. I know what you're up to. And we're forming the pieces on our head of the previous mystery with the girl who was stuck there before he kind of mentions his daughter Emmett kind of reveals that no this was the girl who went missing from his high school and all this other stuff and I kind of found that Howard in that scene there we're going to bring up little women again here Ben that's kind of like his gesture thing like he needs to guess say the word little women and Howard's like describing Michelle and he keeps referring to Michelle as like a little girl, a child, mm-hmm. like a baby, all these things. He will not call her. Yeah. He won't call her a woman. And to me, it's like, he has this weird, like something broke in this guy's brain where it's like, he sees this girl and the other girls he's come into contact with as like his daughter immediately, regardless, it could be like a 50 year old woman. And he'd be like, okay, this is someone who's like my little girl he calls her like little princess or something there too it's very weird and and strange but it kind of gives you this insight to like this guy's smart in a sense for building all this but there's something very very wrong with Howard here and I think that scene alone is like the big winner for me well I don't know how much we want to pull the curtain back here but actually um there's a featurette on the blu-ray and I've got it pulled up on IMDb oh, that actually it gives the timeline of the construction of the bunker oh. and like the whole story that he tells about his daughter is true like the wife does take her to Chicago and all this and the the girl that he abducts he tries to find someone in that same stage of life so that he can basically replicate the daughter that was taken away from him And then with Michelle, it's the same thing. He's like, okay, my daughter would be like a, you know, 20 some year old, like second, third year of college. So I'm going to find a girl that fits that mold. Yeah. And so, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, he, he wouldn't be looking at her as a woman because in his mind, she's filling the role of his daughter. Yeah. That's a great point. I think like what's great about this is this is like to the movie's strength here because none of this is like surface level stuff. This is all stuff that was previously built within like the construct of this movie. Like you're not told like any of this. So me being someone who's seen this movie a few times and then you've been going kind of deep dive here. It's just I like the fact that this could have been like a one and done. Hey, this is the seller movie. And you got some like bad guy, you know, the good guy we're rooting for to get out, but there's a lot more to it, even without the twist of a aliens are here invading earth at the end. (laughs) You brought up the the other scene uh, with John Gallagher Jr. Who plays Emmett, the, uh, the vat of acid scene. So I think we should talk about that while we talk about Emmett's character. Just great on, you know, I've watched a video like way back, a little video essay about how they shot that scene and it's beautiful because they have like three different camera angles where you're always looking over someone's shoulder to look at the other person so there's you know a clear line of sight looking over Michelle's shoulder at Emmett 
Emmett Shoulder at Howard. Mm-hmm. And the way, you know, it really shows the the closeness in that in the bunker, but also the relationships and how they look at one another up until the end where, you know, Emmett confesses. You're kind of out. And she it's like that shot of like uh Emmett's shoulder to Michelle. And she kind of like breathes yeah. a sigh of relief and then the gun enters the frame. Yeah. It's well done. I actually I didn't look up who the cinematographer of is this on this movie, but I'll look them up here so we can give them a proper shout out. But Jeff Cutter. Name doesn't ring a bell, but he's only done a few other things. He did like the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, it looks like, and then Office Christmas Party, uh, a movie called Orphan, The Great uh-huh. Iron Gang with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. That a lot of semi pretty much underwhelming movies which is kind of interesting because i think yeah. it's weird that he and director uh Trachtenberg, like mm-hmm. like you said ben like they should get their props like why aren't they right. making more stuff especially thrillers too i feel like that's their natural gift here right but yeah that whole scene and you you know you even get that sigh of relief with the the i forgive you line and then you know you see michelle breathe a sigh of relief and then the gun comes in and oh man and the the audio at that point too where you know you lose all the hearing and you can kind of hear what Howard's saying and read his lips a little bit, but it's those little details that really you know bring this one over the edge for me. I like uh, Emmett's character a lot because he, while being like I, it's hard to say that like he's the weakest performance in the movie. It's just that he's going up against like two great ones, but he has a very natural presence about himself and sets up again this whole oh no Howard's right like he's like he's doubtful of Howard's like you know mental presence in a sense but he is 100% on board that like this is a safe place to be and kind of throughout the end of the first act as they're getting more comfortable with each other kind of brings Michelle into the family and it's kind of that bridge between michelle and howard that like hey this is and for the audience in a sense too because this is somebody who we feel like we can trust who's been here for longer than she has and also came there willingly uh adds a whole nother layer of depth and like just another avenue your thought process can go down while you're trying to figure out what's going on you know that like emmett's solid (laughs) and that like you can just kind of buddy up with him like he's cool (laughs) yeah he's not like a quote-unquote great performance but I feel like if he was or if he was a big name like a Bradley Cooper it would kind of throw the dynamic off and it would be distracting like he serves his purpose well of being a supplement character oh yeah to to Howard and Michelle's story I think yeah it'd be hard to have three big names that are all you know trying to fight for their moments in the second, I don't know about you guys, but the second you introduced his character, you're like, oh, he's gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> he's one of those characters, like, oh, he's a goner. Yeah, you get you get that sense too, and I think what Ben brought up, like how they go about it, um, I think that's great. Like the the tension rising in that scene, even though you kind of can, if you've seen a movie or two in the past, you get it's a <laughs> foregone conclusion. Like, oh, this isn't our main character. We know this other guy's kind of bad he's probably going to be the one to go one way or another, but I do, this might be kind of disturbing, but the, when it gets to pass that, the climax of the movie with Michelle's character, we'll talk about Mary Elizabeth Winston. Now, 
as she's kind of gone through this whole journey of like getting run off the road, being basically stuck here captive, becoming a part of the family, and then eventually realizing this uh, very dark secret Howard has in his past of, a, of abducting another girl and doesn't want to be caught up in that. She, every decision that she makes along the way is so smart. I found myself like nodding along the first time I watched it because uh, traditionally in horror or thriller movies, you're usually like, don't go in that dark room. Don't go anywhere by yourself. Like you're kind of like, why wouldn't somebody just do this? This movie has like the perfect answer of like, they are doing that smart thing that you should do in that situation almost to a T every single time it comes up mm-hmm. in the story. Yeah. And I think she plays off of Howard's faults and his insecurities of like, you know, even that first time when she, you know, plays it dumb and like cute to like make him drop his guard to get the keys off him yeah. while he's confronting her. Like she knows what buttons to push yes. and how to, you know, how to sneak under the radar so that he won't notice what she's doing. She plays dumb, which is wonderful because so many females and thrillers and horrors, you know, show their hand too early in the movie and get killed. You know, like just play dumb lady until you really figure out what's going on. And she does. So she's great, I think. Or they're just written dumb. She is yeah. written so smart, and I think that's, uh, you guys made the Ripley comparisons earlier on, where with an alien, you know, that movie, like, you kind of don't really know who's going to be the one that makes it. You kind of are with Michelle, and even when things get to their darkest before she gets out of the bunker, you're kind of like, okay, she's got this. We know her track record of decisions from, like you said, kind of figuring out Howard's, like, buttons and how to navigate him very early on in the movie to setting the fire to like get out of the room early on in the movie and then you know even in the stuff where she it's more calm she's still kind of looking and, and immediately doesn't get lulled into that sense of security whereas Emmett's more like oh like isn't doesn't seem that concerned or like with the situation he's on board and willing to help but she's like this is red alert like I'm right back into panic mode I think she gives one of her best performances because she conveys like the processing of emotions really well, whether it's like dread or fear, sadness, that termination, all in like sequence without like seeming like she's overreaching or overacting. She like lets each emotion like on her face, like kind of step in, take a breath, and then she switches to like the next one. You can see like she almost, whether she's crying or like kind of holding back those tears or basically wiping everything off and is going into the next thing, or you can see her thinking about certain situations, you know, and how to approach them. I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead gives a, does a phenomenal job of that where she really does have to like John Goodman's great, but she's like carrying the movie in a sense too, because we have to relate to her, but also sympathize with everything that's going on in this wacko situation, you know? She's this actress that I like, but I, I kind of forget about her until she pops in movies and she's always great. Scott Pilgrim, one of my favorite movies. Oh, I love Scott Pilgrim. Um, one of my childhood favorite movies, Sky High. Remember that one? Oh, Sky oh, High, dude. Oh, man. She was the villain in that one, yeah? Yeah. Spoilers for those who have Spoilers not seen Sky High. Spoilers if you haven't seen Sky High, I'm sorry. She plays... <laughs> she popped up in Birds of Prey, which is up there. It's one of my favorite movies from last year. Yeah. Yeah, she's she should be in 
in more stuff but i'm glad she's in the amount she's been in because yeah it's been this career of just like really solid stuff i can't remember ever her being in a movie and me being like oh because she's also in swiss army man swiss army man. another oh, 2016 yeah. movie she's she's not in that that much um i haven't seen gemini man yet but i want to i know good. she's in that i'm excited she's good and that's that. a very good movie death proof is my least favorite tarantino and she's in that which makes me sad because he wasted her she would be great in a tarantino movie dang it dang it quentin We've got some potent quotable. Dang it, Quentin. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought you were dead after two. <laughs> yeah, I'm still mad about it. Give me a second. Can you pause it? <laughs> potent quotables are like the fun, interesting, meaningful, uh, or touching quotes from the movie that we kind of just found along the way of re-watching the movie. We've got... Uh, not i don't want to say a whole lot of funny ones but i i want to i kind of was trying to guess what your guys's potent quotables would be for this episode um the one that if i were to say was funny in a way and it's probably just because i've seen the movie a handful of times is after kind of howard comes in for the first time gives his introduction he like is about to leave and then for some reason feels the need to introduce himself and he like kind of turns to the camera and is just like I'm Howard, by the way, and immediately slams the door. <laughs> I actually, I have that one written down. Just, it was the delivery of it. Yeah. Of just kind of like that deadpan of like, oh yeah, I need to give you some information about me. It, it comes off both humorous, but also a little unsettling, which yeah. is, I really liked about that line. That's his whole character though, because he is kind of a darkly, a dark I know there is a dark comedy about his character where he's so awkward. Like when he's asking her, like, how do you want your ice cream in a bowl? Or a like cone? right like, after Emmett's been killed. <laughs> after he killed someone. It's creepy, but I was laughing because it's just there's some awkwardness about him. Right when they find out that he had had a previous person abducted, basically, and he comes in between them and presses play on the, <laughs> the jukebox and just kind of starts bouncing up and down. He's shimmying and shaking. <laughs> John Goodman does shake his booty a little bit in this movie. So. He does. Uh, big spoiler warning. Extra <laughs> smart. Uh, one of my favorite, I wrote, I wrote this down, I don't want to butcher it, but... Uh, Emmett says, could have been the Russians, aliens, maybe South Koreans. She goes, you mean North Koreans? He goes, is that the crazy one? Then yeah. <laughs> this guy's just kind of a dummy. <laughs> oh, Emmett. Could yeah, the other, the other funny one that I had written down was the, uh, the exchange where he gets the stitches. And, you know, he's like, well, technically this is vodka. And then, you know, she drinks it and she's like, I just said I distilled it. I didn't say anything about it actually tasting good. You know, that's just kerosene. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the lighthouse. Like they're just drinking straight up kerosene. One of the ones I liked from him, this isn't necessarily a funny one, but you kind of get an inside look into his thesis statement, if you will. And he's like, he kind of pauses and he kind of, he presses like this, uh, I forget if it's like a spoon or a knife, like kind of like up against his head. He's like, you, you guys think I'm crazy. You people wear your helmets when you ride your bikes, wear your seatbelts in your car and alarm systems for, to protect your homes. But what happens when those alarms go off? 
crazy is building your arc after the flood has already come. Mm-hmm. Love that line in the movie. That's a good line. It's the doomsday prepper motto, right? Yeah. <laughs> this guy watches Alex Jones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, big time. <laughs> oh, yeah. These are space worms, people. <laughs> <laughs> the air is non-breathable. You gotta bunker down into the earth. <laughs> the water is making the space worms gay. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, I, I love one of the quotes I love is uh yeah, they're playing catchphrase and he cannot get the word woman. He's like, What what is Michelle? A girl, princess. And at the end he goes, Little women. And I like his reaction because he goes, <laughs> could have been more clear. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah the other one that I had written down because I had most of these but the the other one that I thought was kind of the thesis to the movie was people are strange creatures you can't always convince them that safety is in their best interest which you know and I think that also harkens to the fact that you know he was kind of he was in this rush and he was targeting someone her age so he could have just stumbled into the fact that he was right like he may not have known about this alien invasion, but he's like, nope, it's it's in your best interest to stay here. And in his mind, he's right, but he might not even know that like what's actually going on. I think to push back on you there for a little bit, Ben. Yeah, go I for think, it. I think he actually did because one of the things in like the non-dialogue-esque portion of the movie, we see Michelle leaving her apartment and she's switching through the radio and you hear it in the background of like broadcast of like all these power outages and whatnot. Mm. And so I'd like to think Howard was just like out getting groceries or something and turned on the radio, heard that. And it was like, it's go time. I've got to like get home and then stumbled into Michelle, but you're basically, it's kind of what you were saying too, where you kind of was like targeting her very, very quickly, which is why it was so sloppily done. Right. Yeah. The only thing like there's the one that's kind of a throat. Well, it seems to be a throwaway line, but maybe it is, you know, super intentional when after he kills Emmett, he says to Michelle, this is the way it was always supposed to be or Dude, something to that about that. Yeah. Something to that effect. And I was just like, you know, cause Emmett had already talked about how he yeah. saw Howard closing it up. So he fought his way in mm-hmm. and that's how he broke his arm. So I think that's one of those good things that it's a mystery that's left into interpretation. Did yes. Howard know this was happening and that's why he bunkered down or was he just doing his next abduction and he just happened to be right? Yeah. I think that that kind of plays into like the, the tagline of the movie is uh, monsters come in many forms. And I think like, that's, a, that's kind of what's funny is like, that's a tagline and that's the twist of the movie is the fact that you've got this guy who's essentially a monster who's abducting a, a little girl or a, a teenager at one point and now Michelle. And he had no intention of keeping Emmett alive for very long, regardless of what was going on to your point there. But also monsters in the sense of like these huge aliens who <laughs> are coming to earth to like spread this toxic green gas and they have these little dog alien things with spikes for like faces and stuff. It's crazy, this movie, the ending of this movie. I think uh, the last category here is to infinity and beyond. Uh, it's a question. It's a question of the movie's legacy in five more years and beyond that. And will it still have an impact and should it be talked about? I think a lot of it hinges on what people see of 
not only this being a completely original movie, but also the ending of this movie. I see this movie having kind of a cult following, though. You know, not not a lot of people are talking about this movie mm-hmm. right now, and you know, getting a lot of words attention. But I think it'll have a kind of cult classic kind of spin to it. Uh, for me personally, I don't know if I'd rewatch it. Uh, like I said before, John Goodman's great in it, so maybe I. I'm doing a John Goodman watch through. <laughs> Maybe I'll put it on, but uh, yeah. for me personally, I'm not sure that I'd watch it. I'm kind of two and done. The uh, the one for me is I, I I want very badly. Like I know having the Cloverfield name in the title, the first one is always going to be bigger because it was like the the that internet marketing campaign and like the following that movie has. And so I, I think this movie's legacy will kind of akin to like, hey, Cloverfield, and then there's the, the sequel that's not really a sequel. And it'll always be that movie that like, if people like Cloverfield or friends are talking about Cloverfield, like, hey, did you ever see the sequel? Well, it's not really a sequel, but like, it's still pretty good. You should check it out sometime. But the third one, like you mentioned early on in this episode, Ben, is just, it's going to be the one that's forgotten just because yeah. of the quality and it being having the stigma of netflix movie like tried and true there um but yeah i I hope this movie gets it to do uh throughout the years because i hope more movies take this marketing i think jj abrams should produce more movies than he directs them i think he's a far better producer than he is a director even though I, i am a fan of some of the movies he's directed i just i feel like his mystery box criteria if you will leads better to when his hands are off like he puts those restrictions on and somebody has to work within that boundary and then obviously I'm, I'm a huge fan of the marketing uh with how these movies go and how they come out and are rolled out into theaters i can't take credit for this but i read jj abrams is perfect at starting projects but not very good at finishing them um he's awesome for mission impossible three because that's right in the middle of the series that's a great movie um force awakens one of my favorites i love that movie but he didn't finish star wars that well he you know into darkness wasn't as good the poor guy he knows how to start a really unique project but uh yeah not very good at sticking those landings no he's not yeah i agree with the all that but i will say i if we look at this in another five to ten years i could see this surpassing the legacy of the first cloverfield movie because right. to me, I don't see anyone talking about the first. I think it was really big at the time because it was that kind of found footage thing. But we've seen it so, you know, the Paranormal Activity franchise. Yeah. And then, you know, some of these other horror genres that have done it. Mm-hmm. I, I think this one has that unique story to it that may be more timeless than the original Cloverfield. The original. At least I would hope. So. I think this is a better story and a better film oh, yeah. than the first Cloverfield. So I would hope that you know humanity sees it the same way. But yeah. It has a wider appeal. It's easier to like mm-hmm. this movie than the first. I don't even remember anything about the first Cloverfield. I know I've seen it, but uh I couldn't tell you anything. There's like a birthday party. There is yeah TJ Miller is in it and there's a birthday party. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there's a really good scene in like the sewer system or the subway system. Okay. We used to be the alien for the first time with the camera light, but yeah, yeah, other than that, it's it's been a while, and I I remember liking it at first, and now I'm just kind of lukewarm about it. 
the the marketing for that one and the the mystery behind it was definitely bigger than the movie where i think to your point ben this one had kind of similar where it was like it was rolled out no one knew it was coming it kind of just showed up uh the trailer came out like three weeks before the movie showed up into theaters or something wild like that and then for the most part like people are kind of digging this movie and yeah i i hope that more people go to see it because I don't think a lot of people got a chance to see it and I, I hope they know like if there it has that double-edged sword of like people went you know got the big hype for the original Cloverfield and then they saw Cloverfield in this title and they were like no like that wasn't for me and this is a completely different thing I do want to make it clear I like this movie much more than I like the original Cloverfield I think it's much much better um but yeah no I think that that's great uh I think this is smart characters and it, it makes a case for your villains like mental state and what's going on in his head instead of just making him a very, you know, boring, evil guy. Uh, you don't expose the movie with the marketing. And yeah, there's no pressure of a franchise because it was so disconnected from the first one too. Mm-hmm. I think more movies should take risks like this and end uh kind of up in the air and with also kind of having a wild uh hard left turn at the end with the hook and so i think you can have both where it's like you've got you know howard telling the truth but he also has some very dark secrets and disturbing stuff going on in the background i think more movies should kind of follow the template of hey you can take the wild ending but also make a case for what could have been a very like this movie could have easily ended with emmett getting killed and then her getting out, like you guys were saying earlier on, I think it could have gone either way and it still is a really solid movie. Bagel time. <laughs> bagel. Bagels. We've got to give this movie some bagels. We've got to score it as we're wrapping up here and put it on our rewatchable scale. So I think this is a rewatchable scale. It's very much like a seek it out, but also watch with friends for like a one-time kind of thing because I think it's interesting to watch with more people but also if you haven't seen it or don't know anything about it obviously if you listen to this episode you know everything about it but i still think people should go see it at least once because it's such a unique concept and i know original doesn't always equal good but i think in this case it does yeah i would i would give it a watch with friends with a little bit of a caveat it is a thriller so the more you watch it i think the less impact and even like Daniel had said at one point, it, it doesn't have that rewatchability thriller factor where you watch it, you know what happens at the end. You, you know, there are great scenes, but it doesn't hold up super well. So I would say watch with friends who haven't seen it. People you that, go. you know, like, like you were talking about with the cult status of people discovering it. I think if you know of someone who hasn't seen it and you enjoyed the movie, watch it with them and, you know, get that firsthand experience of, you know, watching them react to some of the big twists in it and, you know, rewatch it for your own enjoyment too. But I I think it's a good one to introduce to people who like sci-fi, like psychological thrillers and, you know, have a friend hang out and share it with them. I'm going to say something original that hasn't been said before. And I'm going to say watch with people who haven't seen it before. (laughs) That's a great argument, Daniel. Would you care to elaborate? <laughs> I love when guests come on and they have their their own unique like spin on it because that's like the whole, some people, I like that you just jumped into it, Ben, but some people in the past have been kind of nervous like messing with it. Like, 
go ahead tweak the rewatchable scale however you want because it's very much like this weird like fluid thing that's always changing so yeah i think uh yeah that's such an excellent point like when you rewatch it if you're rewatching it with someone who hasn't gotten that first-hand experience yet you are then gonna be in this weird like symbiotic thing where you are like re-watching it through them and getting to experience all those big moments again mm-hmm. um i'm gonna give the movie 7.7 bagels okay. respectable uh 5.9 you guys talking to you guys hearing why you like it helps me appreciate it more like i said i don't hate this movie um 5.9 Right. I'm going to, I did, you know, after talking to Daniel and hearing some of his, I have adjusted mine a little bit because he made some excellent points. I'm going to give it 8.1. I still think it's in the oh, eight yeah. range, but it, it did go down a little bit, but I, I enjoy I it. Someone appreciates my genius. <laughs> <laughs> Wes, yeah. you hear that? I make some good points. <laughs> I think your mic cut out there a little bit, Ben, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> thank you again so much for coming on the show and talking 10 Cloverfield yeah. lane and talking movies with us ben love talking movies ben you're the man uh any movies you want to recommend me and west before we go oh I, I don't know are you guys familiar with guillermo del toro's pan's labyrinth uh-huh yes. okay one of my favorite movies of all time all he right. made a it actually came out first and it's a same similar film. It's called the devil's backbone. Okay. It's one you got to kind of seek out cause it's never streaming anywhere, okay. but it's that same sort of it's set during the Spanish civil war. And it's got, it's kind of a, a ghost story. It's set in like this boys boarding school and one of the kids has gone missing and there's like this, you know, mm-hmm. mystical. Uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Subtitles on that one yes yes okay so wes watch that with rachel i know reading is hard for you (laughs) uh... (laughs) i'm like i'm looking up the movie right now trying to find it on blu-ray just (laughs) because i'm a sucker for physical media (laughs) it's in the criterion collection it is i actually on uh oh it would have been like right before black friday Barnes and Noble was having a crazy Criterion sale and I got the three pack of all of Guillermo del Toro's Spanish films and it's got a special place on my shelf now. Um, Oh, here's a good one. If you haven't seen, it's called American animals. I know you guys really like heist movies. Oh, okay. Have you seen it? I have not seen it. Wesley has left the building. I have not oh, seen it, but I've been I have like, all right. things from Wes. It is, it <laughs> is one that was... movie, and I just, I blacked out there for a second. Yeah, have you seen this one, Wes? Yes. Okay. Uh, I, I'll go ahead, take center stage on this one, because this movie, like, I've literally convinced myself that I was the only person that saw this movie, because yeah. everyone's like, who's, what is this? Um, I'll actually name drop Brett Harper, if you remember him from youth group back in okay, the day. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I had I was talking to him and I was like, man, I just I haven't seen a good heist film lately. You know, you've got the Oceans movies, you've got some other. I was like, I'm in the mood for a heist film. And he's like, well, have you seen American Animals on HBO? And I was like, I haven't. So I checked it out. It's it's based on a true story, and it's you know it's fictional, but they bring the people from the real heist 
into it and do like sit down interviews with them that are interspersed. And I love, this is going to be a mild spoiler, so I'm sorry, but there's like one scene that really shows off this different way of storytelling, the visual storytelling that I've yeah. really seen in the past where, you know, you've got one guy that's recounting the story of they were meeting this guy and he's like, oh yeah, he was like really tall and he was wearing a blue scarf and like all this stuff. And then the other guy, you know, starts telling the story and you, you know, as they're talking, you see the scene of him meeting him. And this other guy goes like, yeah, he was really old and really short and fat and he was wearing a <laughs> purple scarf. And it shows, it does the same scene over, but they replaced the guy who he's talking to from this like tall guy with a blue scarf to a short fat guy with a purple scarf. And it's, I'm a sucker for visual storytelling in yeah, film. Dude. Like Edgar Wright is one of my favorite directors for that reason. And, you know, Wes Anderson is definitely up there too. Just being able to show things in a different way that's just not the standard in cinema really gets to me. So, you know, that was one of those moments where I was watching it and I felt like I just discovered this whole new aspect of film. I was like, this is a real life story, but it's also fictional. It, yeah. I loved it. I kind of like that movie too. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, what am I doing? It's pretty short too. I think it's yeah. only like an hour and a half. So it's one of those that you can easily sit down after a work day and watch it. Nice. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Well, this was our 10 Cloverfield Lane episode of the 2016 five-year-old film series we've got here on the Bagel Boys show. That's been Ben, our wonderful guest this week. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ben. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. As always, I'm not Daniel. I'm not Wes. I'm not Wes or Daniel. Look at that. But I feel like Ben, I feel like you kind of are both of us in this weird yeah. sense when it comes to movies. It's like Ben's like saying things that are like right, like swip swapping between like Daniel and I's mind. Like right at the end there, you mentioned Edgar Wright, where I was like, ah, Ben and I are like tracking 100%. And then you mentioned Wes Anderson. I was like, that's Daniel's guy right there, too. Like we're just like right there on the same wavelength but we really appreciate you coming on like i said again thank you so much and thank you to everyone at home listening or out listening or driving or working listening we don't care as long as you listen we thank you so so much and next week continuing on our mini series daniel you want to tell the people what we got coming up we're going to the mcu territory my friends we dr are. dr strange we are going and we've got stuff to talk about a lot of takes on the mcu it's been a while since we jumped into that world i think the last time was age of ultron wasn't ultra yeah Dormammu, we're coming to bargain <laughs> we are coming to bargain baby